Welcome to the Eat Local Central New York podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Tringale. I'm so excited for this week's episode because it launches a two-part conversation I had with Chef Eamon Lee. Anthony Bourdain talked a lot about it, where there's these magic moments within kitchens, where there's a very special crew of people that, again, at some point, they all break apart and then scatter and cross-pollinate everywhere else. If you can follow those um, sort of uh, family culinary trees, you can really draw back to singular influences of a lot of culinary stuff. If you don't know who Eamon is, then I am very excited for you to get to learn more about him. If you already know who Eamon is, then you're probably just as excited as I am right now to be able to get to listen to this conversation. Eamon has been serving the Central New York, Syracuse area in the food world for the better part of three decades. And it's such a great honor to be able to sit down. And I'm so grateful that he was able to take time out of a Saturday morning to come downtown and sit down at our office and chat. So today's part one, and make sure that you have subscribed to the podcast so you know the moment the part two drops and goes live. If you haven't already, head over to eatlocalcny.com, pick up your Eat Local CNY card. It's that $5 reusable coupon. And for the month of April, we're running a contest. When you purchase your card, you're automatically entered to win dinner for a month. That's right. We're buying you dinner every night for an entire month at 30 different locally owned restaurants here in Syracuse. So to enter to win, just head over to eatlocalcny.com and purchase your Eat Local CMY card for $20 and you'll be automatically entered. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Eamon Lee. Beautiful. Hey, let me tell you what I brought here, just so you know. Yeah, for sure. I've been, I've been very, very fortunate to, to have traveled a lot lately. Yeah. So I brought back, I brought a lot of honey. So recently we were in France yeah, and uh, in Provence. And so I brought back four honeys that I've been sharing with just about everybody that has a palate. And these are all from the one area in Provence uh, where we stayed. And uh, it's in the Alps of Al Provence, which is, um, anyway, yeah. there's, 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 People go there and they look at these other places throughout the world and they're like, no way. Like, look at all this great stuff. And then you come back and I don't think people realize that we have that. And I don't want to I don't want to talk too much because it's probably going to be the nexus of our conversation. But here's one from Nantucket that if you get honey off an island, it's it's so special because that is truly representative because did you know where the honey came from? Oh, yeah. yeah. It's very like, you're like, where uh. do they go and get this honey on an island? You're like, uh. there's only probably one thing. So it's hmm. about as pure as a nectar flow as you're going to get. And it's it's fantastic. Yeah. And hmm. unapologetic as yeah. far as the food's concerned, <laughs> which is part of the things that make things beautiful. Yeah. That's wild. Yeah. Well, I mean, let's talk about that for a second. Uh, you know, so here's what I know about, like, my uncle – Yep. I have an uncle who, my dad's brother, older brother, who retired from insurance in Fairfax, Virginia, moved down to Roanoke, right at the base of the, uh, what are those, the Blue Ridge Mountains right there? Yeah. Right at the base of those, built this, you know, picturesque cabin place. And, I mean, the most old school from Syracuse Italian Catholic you've ever met, right? Like goes to the opera, Italian Catholic. So <laughs> no understands what they're singing. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> and yes, he does. And he goes down there and buys this plot of land and starts an apple orchard and starts I don't know what the correct term is, beekeeping or 
and starts making honey or gathering honey, whatever. Stealing it. Stealing it. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so uh, from what I understand of beekeeping is it's, uh, you know, one of and it's just the articles I've read and that kind of stuff. You know, I think Klaus and Mary out in Penyan shared something last year. And um, uh, it's if the bees go, we go, basically. Correct. There, there are people, Einstein's famous quote, you know, um, it, if the bees go, yeah, sure. We go, I would think probably if we back off from that statement a little bit and say that if we destroy our environment to the point where our pollinators are decimated, then it will be very difficult for us as a species to continue to survive Mm -hmm. as we have known. Right. Some people say, well, you could still, you know, live on other things that don't require pollination. But as a lot of people have pointed out, the room... Anything that's colorful, delicious, uh, uh, fleeting, and otherwise just naturally romantic would be completely wiped from your palate. And so you might survive, but, but it may not be a life worth living. Right. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so, it, but the, I think it's the whole attention that all, a lot of the bees have gotten ever since the uh, pop-up of colony collapse disorder mm-hmm. uh, has been very welcome because it, it, it's required us to take a look, a closer look at our environment. Yeah. And then um, what other aspect have we been taking for granted um, up to this point? And it brought a great attention to, wow, our food world is not one-dimensional. It's mm-hmm. three-dimensional, if not more. And we do need to pay attention. And we don't, there's a lot going on there, and I think if we bring a humble viewpoint to it, um, we, a lot can be revealed, and we can also probably better identify our role, our meaningful role, mm-hmm. in that system. Yeah. It, that is not how we've done things since World War II in this country. Right. You know, so um, the, the whole thing has been good for us, I believe. Um, hopefully, it'll have a larger positive impact on our agriculture system. Yeah. All because of a little bee. Yeah. Really. Right. You can draw a straight line from that. Yeah, well, millions of them, right? But gazillions. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so what made you originally get into it? It's mm. a great question because I did not grow up as a farmer or in the country or anything like that. I grew up on Westcott Street. Okay. Okay, so, I mean. So you're, fra- you're born and raised Syracuse. 70s, well, born in Minneapolis. Okay. Um, and, but then moved as a, as a young kid and, uh, uh, my parents were doing graduate work at uh, SU and we uh, moved to uh, Westcott street. Oh, nice. So in the seventies yeah. and the eighties and that illustrious time. So. What's Westcott street like in the seventies and the eighties? <laughs> you know what? I, if anybody's familiar with, uh, the Grateful Dead, I say Westcott Street is Syracuse's Shakedown Street. <laughs> and it's just, you know, when you got down to the financial, I say the business district, which still remains largely unchanged, although the storefronts have changed. Yeah. Um, you know, it was, uh, there were bars down there. There were a few restaurants um, where Beer Belly Deli is. There was an Army-Navy store, Westcott oh. Variety, Five and Dime was still there. Yeah. And the Five Cent Ten Cent was still up on the placard. <laughs> and Westcott Cinema... It's funny, we moved, we moved away and then we moved back in 79, and my mom gave my sister and I, who were 9 and 10 at the time, uh, we gave us two bucks and we went down to the cinema and watched the very first non-triple-X movie at Westcott <laughs> Cinema awesome. because it had just taken hands. <laughs> I remember amazing. the week prior going yeah. up and looking at the bill that was up in the window, and it was 
Katie and the Indians. And I was like, oh, Western. And my mom was like, that's not a Western, man. So I was like, okay. So, but then we went up and it was, I remember it was the first set we saw, one of the first uh, uh, matinees. So at noon, it was a double feature of Cheech and Chong up in smoke and airplane. And we were not of age and nobody cared. That's awesome. $2 cash on the barrel. If, yeah. if anything could ever summarize what it was like growing up in my generation at Westcott Street, yeah. it's probably that. That's awesome. It, and it was awesome because yeah. when we sprang from that neighborhood in the rest of the world, nothing ever surprised us whatsoever. Yeah, for ever. sure. Yeah. Yeah. So that yeah. was Westcott Street growing up. And uh, uh, what was your original question? I forgot. No, that's all right. So, I mean, you, so you essentially grow up here in Syracuse. Yep, yep. Right. And what did oh, your... Oh, the beekeeping. What got me into beekeeping? Yeah. That's right. So... What got me into beekeeping? I was used to be the chef across the street right. um, at the Century Club and um, for 10 years. And it was a great job because it allowed you to, you know, um, it wasn't publicly seen. Their public relations policy is not having a public relations policy. Gotcha. And so I could cook, come and go and cook without a lot of additional pressures that my mm. peers had. So if I wanted a slow night, I could go leave and go to the state fair. So I would go to the state fair and I always went as a chef to the horticulture building because I liked smelling which hay won the blue way ribbon, you know, (laughs) and to see the biggest gourd or whatever. And um, I stumbled on the honey table and there was a single guy there. It was right at the end of the day and he had nothing to do but talk to me. Hmm. And he guided me along the different honeys. Notice I was still wearing a chef coat Mm -hmm. and just... I mean, he roped me in. And then he, when he saw that he had a nibble on his line, yeah. he said, hey, let me smell the little vent on the observation beehive. You know how they have the hive where it says find the queen? Yeah. And I smelled it, and I was just overcome hmm. with the smell of propolis and wax and, and honey and then just probably bee pheromones on top of it. And all I can tell you is that it was absolutely intoxicating, hmm. and I needed to learn more. <laughs> and that was it. It was a complete romantic play. Yeah. That was it. There was nothing pragmatic about it. Hmm. And so the bees wrote me in, and then the, uh, the specter of honey, the next thing you know, I had beehives. The next uh, year, I went and took a, uh, my wife and I took a course at Cornell okay. when the master beekeeping program used to be there. Yeah. We got a quick learn, hmm. and we got ourselves some bees and equipment, and away we went. Wow. Yeah, it was cool. Yeah. What's, um, was there ever any, like, hesitation? Well, I guess let me say, let me ask this. You not only just have it on your property or wherever you are, but you also have it at different farms that you help, correct? So up until recently, we did. So okay. for 10 years, we had, uh, well, for about eight years, we had Lee's Bees. And you may have yeah. seen some of the labels and the different honeys. Yeah. It was a good run. Uh, last year, I sold all of, uh, all of my processing equipment, harvesting equipment, to my friend Brian uh, down at Stone Throw Farm. Okay. Um, we had some you know, recent uh, life changes and stuff, so yeah. uh, the time proposition didn't make as much sense as it used to, yeah. and we didn't like the idea of the equipment going unused, so Brian yeah. was ready to make the move. That's cool. Um, but up until that point, we did have the hives, and we had them yeah. on different farms, yeah. and we discovered when we harvest the honey, they all had different flavors and different mm. uh, expressions. Mm-hmm. And I harvested them all on the same day from farms all around central New York, and it blew my mind that the variances could be so profound. Mm. And we decided, you know what? This is much like wine varietals yeah. in Burgundy or mm. anywhere else in the world where notions of terroir are so expressive. Yeah. And so we decided to bottle our honey that way and people just couldn't get enough of it. It wow. was, it was very, it was wonderful. And it was all in two ways. Number one, it was nice to be able to uh, turn people on to these natural variances that otherwise you probably wouldn't know. Yeah. Uh, unless somebody pointed them out to you. Mm-hmm. But 
that people responded so eagerly to them that mm. they wanted more. They wanted to know more. They wanted to engage with their food. Yeah. It was very, um, you know, again, from our conversation at the state fair to with a beekeeper to yeah. get to that point as a chef was very, um, uh, it was rewarding and um, really filled my sails. Yeah. Is that something, you know, it, well, how have you seen things change from when you started in the industry or in the kitchen? From what I get, from what I understand, it was a pretty young age, correct? Uh, yes. Yeah. Sixteen. Right. To today, have you noticed a big difference between then and now, and just the average customer uh, wanting to know more about where their food's coming from? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Uh, it's night and day, yeah. honestly. So to give it, to give that arc, uh, you know, a couple of, of like bookends, if you will. Yeah. Uh, I started in 1986 mm-hmm. at 16 years old working at the Wellington House, yeah. and, I, and I started rolling Spanakopita my, on my very first day of work. <laughs> um, it was it was uh, it's a long story. There's a backstory there too, but anyway. Um, and now here we come. Excuse me. What is it? Like 32 years later? Yeah. So 32 years later, we look at food. I could I could talk you through it. We we don't have enough time. We don't have enough podcasts to cover it. Yeah. There's a great book. Um, called the united states of arugula okay it's a wonderful book that covers this actual arc of how does american cuisine actually came to define itself yeah. and become into its own yeah and uh that really mm-hmm. ironically my career spanned that a very arc yeah so from the 80s mm-hmm. where if you went down say the 70s and 80s and what was the pinnacle of cuisine really in the united states really was still largely tethered to french yeah cuisine so you look at the Grand Dame that used to, they're down in New York City. Mm-hmm. That was the pinnacle. But ironically, at the same time, you, you, Jean-Louis Paladin started to come over and took a job at the Watergate down in D.C. Mm-hmm. And he started the challenge uh, of American purveyors. Like, what is wrong with you people? You guys are, are buying all of these imported ingredients and all this stuff. And yet you have this wonderful food system in terroir right underneath your feet. Yeah. And he started to bring in some of the lamb. And he started to talk to some of the brown trading up in Portland, Maine. And he got his scallops mm-hmm. and all the crab. And he said, you have the most wonderful food ways here under your nose. Mm-hmm. And it took a French person to come over here to make us realize <laughs> that. So... It's pretty ironic because yeah. we were we were uh, we glamorized the French and, and we paid homage to them, mm-hmm. but at the same time, it took their perspective for us to look at our own world and yeah. our own land to start <laughs> to appreciate it. And it was that very perspective of terroir, its sense of place, a sense of your place, mm-hmm. and an unapologetic, very humble embracing of your place, mm-hmm. not to be ashamed of it, but to ask what your earth can give you and then celebrate it. Yeah, figure out how you're going to survive it, mm-hmm. eating it. Right. And sharing it with each other. And it, thank God for that. Yeah. So when I was there, people were all about the dishes had names. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Sol Veronique, um, you know what I mean? And yeah. all of these things had names and Melba Toast, you know, and all these mm-hmm. other things that were named after people that had long since forgotten. It had nothing to do with the ingredients. It had nothing to do with the, the, the food that were actually went into the dishes itself. It was a classic rep- repetition of this dish and do not vary from it at all. Yeah. Otherwise, shame on you. Two... Of, you know, if you look at if you look at American cuisine through the 80s and early 90s, it, it looks like if you if you remember a couple of very succinct times when you're growing up going through puberty, mm-hmm. it's very similar to that. Yeah. Your voice is cracking. <laughs> you're not the prettiest critter on the face of the earth. You're generally speaking confused all the freaking time. Yeah. And you don't know which way is up, but you have you're, you're overcome with emotions and passion and you just don't have a really good way to communicate them or direct them. That was American cuisine through the 80s and early 90s. And there was some ugly crap. You go out to California, you go to New York City, you go down south in Louisiana, and 
everything started to turn. But thankfully, uh, with the Food Network and all these other things started to come up in the 90s, all of a sudden we started to get our voice. And now food has become something that is, as Michael Pollan points out, people in our country now watch food on TV twice as much as they actually cook it. I don't think that's necessarily a good thing. I think, we, I think it would be good if we watched it, if we cooked it more than we watched it. But any sort of attention I think it, it gets is good. We just, I think it would be better if we embraced it better. But anyway, that's where food is. And, and whether you like it or not, that's the world that we live in. Now people, everybody wants to know the story of where it came from, uh, what it is that you're cooking. Maybe sometimes to overboard like that famous episode of Portlandia yeah. which everybody references about the chicken and yeah. can we go meet the chicken now you know <laughs> and that might be a little overkill but um I think if you look at uh you know some areas some restaurants right here that do a good job of sustainably uh working relationships with their purveyors and then positioning those names and celebrating them on their menus mm-hmm. and within their dining rooms when the servers uh engage with their guests and it's not something that's overwrought. It's very, uh, I say organic from the standpoint that it feels natural to do it. Yeah. Um, it, that is probably one of the greatest things that has happened to our business yeah. these days. Um, and it continues to grow. Yeah. I mean, I think of even, well, I think one of the more famous uh, menu items around here that you see it named something or called something is Hudson Valley Duck. Sure. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's the one thing, you know, granted I'm 32 and haven't spent my entire life in this industry, but to think that in the past three years, that has been popping up at every menu around town, Hudson Valley duck. And so really, really cool story about Hudson Valley. So yeah. Hudson Valley farms and, uh, the, it's linked to, um, D'Artagnan um, and uh, all of the wonderful people that had a vision a long time ago. Um, You know, again, you, you look at how they looked at why can't we raise, barring the, the foie gras uh, uh, people um, have an issue with this production and I'm not going to get into that, but people looked at a product that they saw in France that was naturally occurring because uh, geese would uh, naturally gorge before a migratory thing. They would store the fat stores in their liver, mm-hmm. and people discovered if they harvest, listen, you're hungry, there's a goose out back, we need to eat something. Yeah. Oh, my God, look at the size of this liver. All right. Oh, my gosh, it's delicious. <laughs> okay, it wasn't really, like, not people like, let's fatten these geese up and make a ton of money. That's yeah. usually not how food things start. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, it usually starts with somebody starving to death. Yeah. And um, so anyway, people, you know, eventually realized, it was like, oh, maybe we can do this over here. But... It wasn't sustainable with the uh, species that they had. And then they got into duck, and then they realized that if they crossbred these two species of duck, mm-hmm. they had something that was amazingly disease-resistant, um, and uh, it was absolutely delicious. And I've t- I toured that farm 25 years ago, mm-hmm. my, and, and it was a wonderful experience. Uh, I had never seen it because it was literally just me and Izzy walking the farm. And uh, he sh- walked me from the incubation room, all the way to the processing area where they would um, separate the meat. They literally sold, as he said, his words, everything but the quack. Hmm. And every single piece of that animal was sold or used for something. Wow. And if you think about it, basically what they did is they scaled up a way a French grandmother would have done it on her farm anyway, Mm -hmm. times a thousand or 10,000, whatever. But it was the same viewpoint, appreciation, 
and uh, rural economics that has fueled generations of people, not just in France, but all over the world. Yeah. And it was modeled over a company that is enjoying a, a, a revival today. Yeah, for sure. It, it really is. I was in, um, a friend of mine and I took a very quick day and a half trip to Maine. I think it was a, towards the end of summer, maybe a year and a half or two years ago. First time I'd ever been up there. Beautiful. Yeah. And we went to Portland and... Uh, I really just wanted to get up there and get pictures and eat whatever good food I could find. And some of the best food I found was in, I don't want to say it was Kenny Bunkport, but it may have been, uh, but some restaurant right there, kind of like on the water, sort of, maybe it wasn't Kenny Bunkport, but anyways, I opened the menu. We're there at like two 30 for lunch. So there's us and like another old couple in there for dinner that's having dinner, right? right. We're there for a Probably the lunch. bushes. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and I open the menu and the first thing that I see is Hudson Valley foie gras. And I had never had it before. Really? I never had foie gras before at all. I had just come off of Dan Barber's third plate, you know, his book. Oh, okay. So you're, and you're lit. I know. And I'm like, <laughs> oh my God, this is it. <laughs> and I had it and it was amazing. You that's know. fantastic. But you had it in Maine of all places. I had it in Maine of all places. That's an interesting perspective and experience, isn't it? Yeah. To, so we, I, you'll hear me say terroir a lot mm-hmm. because there's, we still, as, as a society in the, in the United States, we still, um, we have a long way to go in embracing our dirt. We, we did it a long time ago yeah. and it was here already when we got here, but I think we decimated it to a degree. Um, and I think we're starting to learn to appreciate it again. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's funny that the last thing we recognize in our country is, put it this way, the last thing a fish recognizes is the, is the water within which it swims. Yeah. It, we take it for granted, all of these things around us, and we just don't see them. Yeah. Until, but then you go out somewhere else uh, to Maine to discover the value of Hudson Valley foie gras. That's, <laughs> that right there is the thing. It's it's very important for us to get out and, and see things. It's yeah. funny, though, that we have to get out of ourselves to recognize the value of where we live and what we grow. But I think it's also a necessary exercise yeah. um, because we do lose perspective mm-hmm. by, by being here all the time. Yeah, for sure. I was just at Abbott's uh, Farms uh, yesterday okay. talking to uh, Alice Abbott, and uh, she was uh, discussing some of the challenges historically with the property and trying to drive an agritourism business yeah. in central New York and used to be, there weren't a ton of them, yeah. you know, and people would save usually at the same handful year in and year out. But now it's funny. Something has happened. We have discovered these things and now there's competition. Yeah. A lots of it. What? Lots of it. I think about that every time I drive, uh, for a client of ours is beacon skiff. And every time I go out there and I pass every small apple orchard on the way, and I think to myself, it must suck to be them. Well, well, yeah, sure. You, so you go just along Route 20 and you see yeah. a number of them and you can see where maybe there was a heyday and they've fallen into disrepair. Right. They can't keep up, whatever. And you realize that, wow, this, this, there is a whole economy over here. Um, I, we haven't had that problem in central New York. In other words, I am seeing now, I have never seen more culinary passion and talent and ideas in our market ever mm-hmm. than there is right now. Really? And it's young energy, yeah. um, which is important. And even better, let's take some restaurants downtown like Amano. Um, people that have gone to other markets and thrived working for the big influencers in those markets. So they work for Mark Vetri down in Philadelphia. Yeah. To come back to Syracuse right. 
inspired, enlightened. Yeah. And then you, they went to Philadelphia, saw their value. And Alex and Lauren um, um, recognized what they were doing and how that worked within that environment and then brought it back to Syracuse and seek to replicate it here. You can do that. Yeah. But they had to leave see it from a different perspective and that in order to see the value and then come back and realize it. I was just having that conversation with Eric Alderman last week. Sure. Not necessarily about the culinary scene and food, but just about Syracuse in general and kind of where you grew up. And I, you know, I said the same thing last week. I don't, I'm sure it's the same case across multiple generations, but especially for mine being raised here, go, you know, graduating high school, whether you go to school, college here or not, or you leave and go somewhere else. There's so many of so many people that I went to high school with and friends that I know left, hated it, couldn't wait to get out. There's nothing here, went somewhere bigger mm-hmm. and then came back a few years later. Yeah. You know, it, it's and it come back for any number of reasons. Right. right. I say usually it's sick family or uh, yeah. or something else. Or, but generally speaking, it's usually a life change that um, drives coming back home. Mm-hmm. After, at the end of the day, Syracuse is a reasonable place to live it's yeah. a, for, as far as expense is concerned. It's easy to get around. Right. Um, and um, we, don't, we aren't faced with the type of natural disaster that could devastate us. Right, exactly. Snow and cold. Yeah. Okay, not too bad. Yeah, it's not the end of the world. It's not. And actually, when it comes to food, it's actually we're lucky to have four very expressive seasons mm-hmm. because our color palette, culinarily-wise, is very robust. Yeah. Um, So I think people recognize that it's actually a pretty easy place to live, should you choose. Mm -hmm. Um, But again, you don't realize that until you go somewhere else. Right. I was, uh, I realized when I was 25 years old, we had just opened uh, Arid Evans in Fayetteville. So it was... (laughs) You were there, you were, that was the opening, correct? It was the opening, yeah. Yeah. So uh, I had worked at, um, uh, I'd gone to, I went to Paul Smith's College in in the the late 80s and then... uh, uh, went and worked in Vermont for a year, which mm-hmm. was um, very influential as well yeah, in sure. Woodstock area. And um, then came back home, worked in Casanova at the Brewster Inn for three years, worked mm-hmm. with Brian Shore there. I was a sous chef. Okay. Um, that was, those were halcyon days as well. Yeah. Um, and then um, wound up, uh, uh, Jason Thomas and I had gone to Nottingham together, mm-hmm. and he's the owner of Arid Evans Inn. And uh, Jason and I, uh, Jason's actually responsible for getting me into the business in the first place at the Wellington House. Uh, we, went, we were actually going fishing at Green Lakes at, when I was 16 years old, <laughs> and he had to stop at the Wellington House where his father lived to get his gear. Hmm. And I said, wow, I never, I've always seen this building. What is it? Next day I was washing dishes. <laughs> Rolling Spanakopita. <laughs> so anyway, uh, so uh, uh, we, Jason had uh, reached out to me, and we had talked and decided it was a good idea. My friend uh, Will Verbeck is the chef, mm-hmm. was a chef, and I was a sous chef, and we enjoyed a very busy first year there. Um, it was a remarkable thing to be a part of because um, you have to remember back then the mall was dead. And it, I mean, it was dead. It was desolate. There was nothing else in town. Hmm. Um, the, where the Craftsman Inn is, it was a swamp. Hmm. Um, the only other restaurant was actually up in Manlius. It was Christopher's at the time. It used to be Cretella's up in where I think it's uh, Stinger's is now in Manlius. Okay. And, and outside of that, there wasn't a whole lot around. Huller's. Yeah. Uh, which is a you know neighborhood joint. Right. And um, Kirby's was still there. So uh, it's, <laughs> Kirby's it's, is always there. You know what? He, 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 Mr. Zeb does not get enough credit for restaurant operation. No. If anything, that guy has survived everything. He's a survivor. Listen, I grew up in Westvale, and there's that one right there in like the Westvale Plaza. You yeah. know. And I, to this day, if I my parents still live in that house, if I go, if I'm driving past that place on like five to eight o'clock. 
packed. I cannot get over it. I mean, I haven't, I haven't eaten there since I was in high school. So I'm not knocking it. I just cannot get over that a restaurant in that plaza is that busy for this many years. Yeah. Same thing in Fayetteville. Yeah. yeah. Same thing. You drive by it all the time and it's like unbelievable. And it's always busy. It's wild. He's a survivor. Uh, it's, it's, it's pretty funny. So, but at that time, again, Eric Evans, we, we plopped down this old mansion and we, we revived this mansion. Jason bought it directly from the old owner. Hmm. And uh, behind there, where the retirement center is now, there actually used to be a farm field with like a paddock almost. Oh, wow. Okay. We, yeah. Hindsight being 2020, that could have <laughs> yeah. been pretty, pretty special. But um, it was cool because most people don't realize in the first year that Eric Evans was open, mm-hmm. it wasn't in. Hmm. There were rooms upstairs. We did have house guests. We also were open for lunch Monday through Friday and brunch. Wow. So we, <laughs> it was, as soon as we left... I went to New York City to cook, mm-hmm. and uh, my friend Will got into distribution, and uh, uh, they canceled lunch, brunch, and the rooms. <laughs> Did dinner only. <laughs> so anyway, uh, ironically, as soon as they closed for brunch, Syracuse New Times gave them best brunch of really? the year. Yeah. <laughs> so they had a curse of phone calls for a year. That's awesome. Um, well, anyway, uh, but it was, it, was, it was a lot of fun. A lot of wonderful people went through that kitchen at the time, and it was, it was a cauldron. It was, it was pretty cool. What was the place, uh, I forget the name of the restaurant that like every Italian-American restaurant today came from. What was it? Um, in, 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 the, in Syracuse. Well, uh, Grimaldi's? Grimaldi's. Okay, yeah. yeah. And that family, you, you can go to Utica and you can get all the place, but Rita is still right. feeding food and Bundy's still creating great food up there at Carrier Circle. They do a wonderful job. Yeah. And Rita is just a dyed-in-the-wool hospitality Um queen in my opinion yeah and um it's still a great place to go and and when people go through kitchens they go through these places and then there are these um anthony bourdain talked a lot about it where there's these magic moments within kitchens where there's a very special crew of people that again at some point they all break apart and then scatter and cross pollinate everywhere else if you can follow those um sort of uh, family culinary trees you can really draw back to singular influences mm-hmm. of a lot of culinary stuff. Yeah. Um, these days, it's very easy to tra- track a lot of that stuff down with social media and the internet. Yeah. But back in the day, people didn't understand how it worked. But Central New York really stemmed from just a small handful of restaurants. Yeah. You know. What was that place for you when you were working at Arid Evans when you were first getting started in the area? A, a place that was like heavily influential to me. Yeah. It's funny because at that time in, in the 90s, again, that was 95 we opened up, Valentine's Day of all days. Um, <laughs> It's not a bad, that's, that's, yeah, that was hindsight being 2020. I probably would have been better to open up the 15th. Yeah, but anyway, right. <laughs> uh, the, uh, I was still looking, I was still looking outside of this environment at that time. Yeah. Based again, what we talked about is, you know, it wasn't here that was important. It was somewhere else that was important. Um, I didn't realize in my mid twenties that I wanted to go work for what I thought were the two most impar- important American chefs at the time. Mm-hmm. And I think they were very, um, they were influential massively was Charlie Palmer down at Oriole in New York city. Mm-hmm. And then uh, David Burke also at park yeah. Avenue cafe yeah. in New York city. And I was very, very lucky and fortunate to be able to work for both of them. And, um, and, and also it turned out I worked for, um, I wanted a savory job working the line for David Burke. Hmm. And I had literally, I had, I had at the Arid Evans uh, hotline in the kitchen, I had hung up two pictures of David Burke with his crew at the time he was at the river cafe in Brooklyn and we hung up both pictures on either side of the line. I said, this is the standard. We never drop below striving for this standard in this kitchen hmm. ever. 
Wow. And and they were both. I can still remember the pictures. What um, sparked that? I mean, what sparked that drive for excellence or for achievement in your head? I mean, if you're you know you're starting at 16. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And uh, I mean, event you did you went to culinary school, but not at 16. Obviously, not before right. your first job. Right. So, what sparked that kind of strive for excellence in you? Well, it's a good question. Um, I, I realized I wanted to be a chef. It uh-huh. was a job at 16 years old. Yeah. And and frankly, it was a job that you know, it was fun. I could work. I could cook. I got I got fed. I got paid. And I usually got cash tips and somehow Molson found its, its, its <laughs> way in my hands, whatever, at the end of the shift somehow. Yeah. And I was like, I can't believe I get paid for this. This is great. Yeah. What a great job at high school for all, you know. <laughs> so um, anyway, uh, uh, the chef, I worked there for a couple of years. And then the chef at one point, he had to take a day off and he entrusted a wedding to me. Wow. Uh, which was a big deal. I mean, I think wow. 17 years old. I'm wearing cutoffs and a tie dye. I've got Grateful Dead bootlegs blaring in the background in the kitchen, and I'm making fettuccine alfredo. I'm doing all. I'm roasting uh, prime ribs <laughs> and making pretty serviceable food for yeah. for a kid. All right. And um, we executed the meals we always did. And the bride and groom came into the kitchen asking for the chef. <laughs> and here I am again, just as I described. Yeah. And I and I'm twirling my tongues, going well, sheepishly. That would be me. And they were, and then they were taken aback at first. They were like, you, you, you cooked that meal. And it was like, I did. And scared that I'm about to get lit up. Yeah. And they were like, that was the most memorable meal we've ever had. Wow. And we just want to let you know, we want to tell you personally, and we want to let you know that we will never forget this day because of it. Wow. To, at, at, at that age, mm. to understand that through my joy of a craft of cooking, could have that type of effect on another human being was the singular moment when I realized that I wanted to continue to do this for the rest of my life hmm. and not just do it, but do it to the extent that I could have that effect on another person, hmm. which meant you needed to do it well. Wow. And that was the touchstone. Yeah. And it's, and it was funny because Jason Thomas's father was in the kitchen at the time, leaning on the, leaning in the doorway, smoking a cigarette. And then with a, with a hand, with, a, with an old Greek lawyer's hand, with a cigarette hanging out of it, he pointed to me with his eyes squinting. He goes, I'm sending you to culinary school. <laughs> the rest is history. That's awesome. It was, it was, it was, it was cool. Story. Yeah. So, but that's, that's what drove it. And I never looked back. Yeah. Um, I don't know what drives the creativity and, and the, uh, the drive to do well, but I carried it through Paul Smith's college. Hmm. Um, I, uh, there were culinary contests. I won it. Um, there were, there were, uh, uh, American culinary Federation things that I did. I got gold medals. I just, the pursuit of perfection to me in the craft end of it was something that was never a question. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I thought there was something wrong with you if you didn't try to do it Hmm. perfectly and not leave anything in the bag as it were. Is it, I don't, it's not really typical to see that in, I mean, I don't know about the area at the time, but it's not very typical to find that mindset or mentality outside of a major restaurant at the, at those years at that time. Yeah. It, well, um, yeah, I mean, because you're, in the late eighties, you're kind of putting out just your rank and file right. kind of stuff. Yeah. Strap on the feedback, dude. Yeah. And, um, or, and again, replicate, not innovate, but replicate right. was the, was the, um, par and it, it was different. And I didn't realize it at the time, if I showed you a menu at Arid Evans in back in 1995, you'd probably scoff at it hmm. and because of what was on it. But at the same time, if we're going to make these things, we need to do them well. Mm-hmm. So 
Um, it did drive us, and I think it, it gave Aaron Evans, it set them up for a lot of success. Um, I think it established a culture within yeah. that brand that remained after we left, which was great. Yeah. Not to mention, you know, Brian Shore went in there afterwards and did just an amazing job, and a ton of different uh, great chefs have gone through there yeah. um, that all still continue to do very well in this business. Yeah. So um, that was different, but I, again, it's just something that we did. We thought it was important. We celebrated it, but we didn't, um, we didn't compare ourselves to other people necessarily. It was mm. just what we did. Yeah. There probably wasn't as many opportunities for comparison as there are today. Not today, no. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there was definitely a handful of restaurants that did extremely well. I remember that, you know, Pascal's in their day was, yeah. there was really the standard bearer of this community. Hmm. Um, the Brewster Inn um, at the time, we, you know, uh, again, we did great work out there. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there weren't as many restaurants. The other thing, too, if you think back then, excellent food and, ex- and execution um, was something that you would expect to find in a air quote, fine dining restaurant. Yeah. You wouldn't expect it to find it at a coffee shop, maybe, per right. se. Now you can find excellent cuisine and wonderful execution and beautiful ingredients at a place where a meal may cost you less than $10, mm-hmm. and you may eat it at 2.30 in the afternoon, at 10.30 in the morning, or yeah. an otherwise non-traditional time day part. Um, and still get wonderment that is very easily accessible for any number of socioeconomic disruptions that have happened since we found our voice as a country in food. And that's a great thing. I always reference the David Changs of the world for that, for really being a huge part of that movement, Mm -hmm. that deliciousness, his word, um, need not be hard to find, expensive to get. It needs to be accessible to everybody it's not good enough just to feed in our business. If it's something that you want to make a business and be successful and grow and thrive, it needs to be absolutely fucking delicious. And (laughs) that's what he says. And that's what we say. (laughs) And if, and if you understand that, that is something that will drive you all day long. And it's a, it's a, (laughs) it's unapologetic. Hey, thank you so much for checking out the episode. I really hope that you enjoyed that part one conversation that I had with Eamon Lee. Again, make sure you hit the subscribe button so you know the second that the second part launches. If you don't already, head over to Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter and follow us at EatLocalCNY or find us online at EatLocalCNY.com.